Okay, after some technical difficulties, we can uh, we can try to get going here. All right, we're looking at uh, church history, and as we talked about last time, we're, we're in the time period of the pilgrims. So this is a pilgrim, right? Except it probably isn't. This isn't really what they look like. First off, um, the pants are too tight, and I'm not saying that's a prude. I'm just saying it's just not, it's not the way that they would have looked. Most Puritans at this time wore uh, some variation of what was called a, a slop, um, Dutch pants, poofy pants, however you want to talk about it. This particularly Dutch style was popular in uh, both Holland and in England, and this is what your average everyday guy would have been wearing. And when we're talking about the Puritans, specifically the pilgrims who came over to the New World, we're talking primarily about people who were everyday people. They're not filthy rich. Which is why this is probably the wrong color. I know. We always think, oh, well, the pilgrims wore black. No. No, they probably didn't. Black is a relatively costly dye. Um, it's expensive to wear black. It fades quickly. This is primarily being used by churchmen, um, by rich people, for particularly fancy occasions, like getting your portrait painted, which is why sometimes you'll see people dressed in black in their portraits. But the everyday stuff, this isn't what they would have worn. Um, so they, uh, if you look at a description that uh, one Puritan guy left in his, um, in his will for his son, he left one blue cloth suit, green door, drawers, uh, violet cloth coat, black silk stockings, and sky blue garters. That's not a black suit. Um, Governor William Bradford himself wore a turkey uh, red grosgrain suit. Uh, grosgrain is uh, okay. It almost looked like uh, like ribbon fabric to us today. Um, kind of silkyish, taffetyish looking things, very ribbed. Anyway, uh, red waistcoat, uh, vest. Tawny colored suit with silver buttons, violet cloak of velvet lined with taffeta, etc. This is what a pilgrim would have worn. Now, they did emphasize being relatively simple in their style of dress. Uh, but you gotta remember, <laughs> you gotta remember, if this is what fancy dress looks like uh, for, for guys of the era, uh, you can understand why simple dress is a relative thing. So, anyway. Oh, they also wouldn't have had so many buckles. We always picture them with buckles on their on their hats, buckles on their shoes. That didn't happen for almost another century before people started doing that. And uh, uh, they, most men wore belts under their doublets, so you wouldn't even see it. You probably wouldn't see any buckles on a Puritan, much less 175 like what you normally show. I'm sorry? Yeah. Um, why, why do we picture it this way? Because a lot of paintings um, and depictions of pilgrims were done 100 years later, 200 years later, at a time when people got their styles all messed up. They read later styles back into it, like we often do. I mean, um, we've talked about this before, but remember, the worst depictions of the Old West, the most inaccurate depictions of the Old West, were in like our 1930s movies, 1940s movies. Isn't that the way cowboys look? They all look like Gene Autry, right? Big white ten-gallon hats. That's that's what everybody wore. No, but we assumed that we knew what it was. We're like, oh, that was that was you know recent enough ago that we can we can we know what it was like. We remember, and so in our assumptions, we we 
depict something that is not that way. It's an idealized form. It's a, an anachronistic form of the way those things used to look. Uh, it, it's not until the Italians decided in the 60s that they kind of wanted to make Westerns too. And they said, well, I, I don't know exactly what it looked like. Let's do some research. Let's look at some old photographs and figure it out what it was like. Anyway, um, this, uh, this weapon here is called a blunderbuss. You, you know, it, you've seen this kind of stuff with a flared um, barrel like that. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a shotgun, an old flintlock shotgun. Um, there's a debate as to whether or not they'd even been invented by the time the pilgrims came over here in 1620. Uh, so it would have been really hard for them to bring them over if they hadn't been invented yet. Even if they had, we, they were extremely rare. I mean, even later, a uh, hundred years later, they're still very rare in the new world. But, um, it's possible that there were some relatively early colonists that had some, but it's just, this was much more of a continental thing. So it, it's, it's almost certain that the pilgrims coming over the Mayflower would not have had a blunderbuss. So this basically is more the way a pilgrim would have looked. Um, this is a, a classic Puritan way of dressing. Uh, or if you really want to get down to it, it's working in the fields, most normal, everyday-ish kind of look, more like this. No buckles on the shoes, ties on the shoes, but no buckles. Um, no belts that you can see. None of that. Anyway. Just that you can get a mental picture. When we talk about pilgrims, this is what we're looking at. All right. So we're in the Age of Enlightenment, sort of. Again, we're kind of building up into the Age of Enlightenment. And we left off last time talking about John Winthrop preaching a, a sermon about a city on a hill in 1630 on his way over. Before I do that, let's, since we've got a couple of new people here, we've got the youth here in the, in the, in the classroom with us. Um, I want you to remember how the colonies are laid out at this point in history, okay? Um, this large uh, purplish section over here, this is New France. France owns the largest piece of the New World. And uh, running around, interacting with uh, the Native Americans, doing a lot of trapping, etc. Spain is technically supposed to own the New, the new World. If you remember, the Pope gave Spain... Uh, the Americas. But they're pretty much spending their time looking for cities of gold in the southwest and a bunch of Jesuits setting up mission stations and things. They're not building uh, cities and communities quite yet. Not really. So the French are actually doing that. And and all the Protestant nations go, I don't care what the Pope says. I'm Protestant. Pope said, this is Spain? I don't care. I think this looks like England right now. So You've got that blue area here on the coast that's owned by New Amsterdam because the Dutch say, we're not Catholic. I don't care what the Pope said. Got their beaver trade going. That's great. Um, the British Puritan separatists that we've been calling the Pilgrims, they'd left Holland to found the Plymouth Colony up here in Massachusetts. So is that a British colony or a Dutch colony? It came from Holland. They're all British. Technically, they're... Um, their mandate was to be part of the uh, Virginia colony, but that's down here, this red section down here. So they're not connected to the British Virginia colony. What are these guys? Are they British? Are they Dutch? Are they their own thing? Well, the British have now set up the Massachusetts Bay colony right next door to Plymouth because 
it's working out for Plymouth. And that means that increasingly that Plymouth colony is basically becoming just, for all intents and purposes, a satellite of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's all one big colony. they got different charters, but the Plymouth Colony isn't where they were supposed to be anyway. Now, if you're this blue, yeah, exactly, if you're this blue New Amsterdam Colony, what are you thinking right about now? Surround, yeah, you're, you're feeling like, I'm getting scrunched. These guys are kind of close in on me. And you would think that's impossible. How on earth is that even possible? You've got all this land, tremendous amount of land in the New World. I mean, they're fighting over every square inch in England and in, uh, in Germany and in Spain. They're, they're, everything matters. Tiny, tiny little bits of ground that they're pounding each other over. You've got all the resources in the world. Surely nobody's ever going to have any problems in America, right? <laughs> exactly. This may be history's most clear example of a simple fact. You're never going to change human beings by changing their external situations. You can't say, all I need to do is change my circumstances. Everything's going to be different. I know, I know, I know I keep dating abusive boyfriends. But if I just get a new boyfriend, everything will be fine. Really? Because I'm pretty sure you're still going to be drawn to the same guy because it's still you! You are the same person. If I were to take Randy out of Illinois and, and away from IDOT and plop him in Nevada, he's not going to suddenly stop thinking like an engineer. He may not be working in the, in the transportation system. He's still going to be Randy. He's going to have the same morals, the same values, the same priorities, the same mental structure. He's going to be the same. I mean, yes, one of the parts of how you change uh, the way you think about things is to change your circumstances, but you can't say... If I change my circumstances, that'll change who I am. Anyway, 1630, because this is where I said we were starting. 15 minutes into the plan. Um, John Winthrop preached about a city on a hill. He's got this flotilla of ships leaving England to, uh, to go to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He's got like 700-plus colonists. And uh, uh, they got this wonderful send-off from his friend John Cotton, who's a minister, a Puritan minister in England, but that it said, you know, I'm not a separatist. I'm not going to go with you. We've got to be able to work within the Church of England. So I encourage you guys, I, I wish there's some way you could you could realize that separatism, breaking off and saying, we're, we're not going to be a part of you. That's not the way to change things. That's not the way to work things. Anyway, while they're on, on, on board their ships, Winthrop gives this lay sermon, because he's not a preacher, he's not a minister, but he gives a sermon on, on a model of Christian charity about how we're supposed to live like good Christians. How do we live out the love of Christ? And he cites Matthew 5, 14, where Christ said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And he says, you know, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be a model for the rest of the world. We have the opportunity to be a perfect society, to have everything right, and to show people what a perfect Christian society is like. Now, it's kind of neat. People thought that was really cool. Um, but it didn't really make a big to-do at the time. I mean, they, they, they remembered it, but it wasn't a big splash. But the ripples of its little splash kept getting bigger and bigger. I mean, first off, Winthrop is arguing for being pure Puritans. 
we're going to be the purest pure Puritans ever. We're going to show people what it means to be Christians, what it means to be Puritans. We're not going to let anything um, taint us. We're going to have this rock solid. So, like we talked about last time, the religious freedom you have in the United States at this well, United States, sorry, America at this time, is not a religious freedom for everybody to believe what they want. It's a religious freedom for you to be the Puritan that you wanted to be. And so they had a very strong sense of um, telling other people that they're wrong. In fact, uh, when Winthrop actually gets to the New World, uh, the Salem Church and Pastor Skelton there says, you don't get to take communion because you're not separated enough. You're not reformed enough. You're not Christian enough. You're not pure Puritan. Joe, I'm giving a sermon on pure Puritanism isn't pure Puritan enough for us. Which, why? Um, because he because he, he, he didn't advocate necessarily separating completely from all churches and separating from the Church of England. He was coming to be a good Puritan and to show people what that's like, but he, he wasn't um, as militant as, say, Skelton was, who was a little bit more militant. The Salem Church was kind of doing its own thing. This is... Yeah, this is before the witch trials, but this is, Salem is kind of an intense, an intense church at this time. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's, okay, Brian just said, uh, yeah, he usually thinks of excommunication as a Catholic thing. Yes, um, excommunication literally just means you don't get to take communion. Um, and, and there's a lot of churches that, that do that. Um, there's, uh, in Catholicism, where communion is how you remain saved, uh, if you are told you cannot take communion, then that's tantamount to saying, you know, burn in hell. But uh, there's a lot of churches that practice this um, this not taking communion thing. Um, you don't get to do that. Uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, someone was dealing with something in our church, and uh, we were trying to, to talk with them and, and work with them, and, uh, and somebody from a Presbyterian church in the, in the area said, well, then you just need to deny them communion until they get their act right. And uh, the idea of saying somebody is not a Christian, therefore I should tell them you should not take communion, yeah, I'm all over that. That's, that's scriptural. The idea of using communion or the lack of saying punitively, that makes me very uncomfortable, to be honest. So... Um, the, uh, the the uh, the Amish Mennonites different gr groups um, practiced a form of of excommunication that they call shunning. It's not just you can't take communion with us on a, in a church service, but we're not eating with you. You can't come over to my house and have turkey. It's weird disconnecting ourselves from. Oh, right, right, right. anyway. Um, this gets really important when you get people like Ann Hutchinson and Roger Williams popping up here in a minute. Second thing, though, not only are we talking about pure, 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 pure Puritanism, but we're, we're opening the door for something called American exceptionalism. In fact, we were just, yesterday, yesterday, we were just watching an episode of Elementary, and, uh, and Sherlock, being from England, refers to American exceptionalism. And I start cracking up, going, we're going to talk about this tomorrow. But it's the sense that America is something special. We're unique. We're doing things our own way. I don't care if everybody else in the world does it that way. We're doing it this way because, because we're amazing. 
we are truly unique. We're truly God-honoring at our core in a way that nobody has ever been. Um, we're a model Christian nation. We're a new Jerusalem. We're that city on a hill. So everybody else converting to metrics? No, 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 not us, because we're amazing. Just the way we are. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to start singing. There have been a lot of ministers that have said this over the years, but also politicians, presidents. John F. Kennedy uh, talk, used this phrase, talked about this uh, in, in 1961. Ronald Reagan alluded to it in multiple speeches. Bill Clinton alluded to it in 1996. George W. Bush in 2004. Uh, Barack Obama in 2006. Over and over this idea of we are something special that the rest of the world is watching, and we will change the world by being America. Um, now, what's interesting is, as it went along from each of these guys, it moved farther and farther from, we need to be a, a moral city on a hill that changes the, the world for Christ, and it becomes more and more a, a sociopolitical thing, which is an interesting concept when you think about it, uh, that it's being morphed. You're, you're, you're a city on a hill, but not for the same reasons. Anyway, thus, thus, uh, it, it's, it's paved the way not only for uh, American evangelistic outreaches all around the world, because you know, we're the seat of Christ now, although uh, we, we haven't been for quite some time. Anybody know, like per capita, who sends out the most missionaries? Yeah, actually, I think it's, I think it's South Korea now. It has the most solid... Uh, 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 evangelical Christians per capita, and I believe sends out the most missionaries. I don't know, I have to check that out, but I think so. Um, but it's also, because of political um, use of this phrase, it's also been the foundation for American expansionism across the continent, across the world, justified by bringing the American way or the American ideal to everybody else. I mean, think about it this way. Um, maybe you're different. Maybe, maybe you have a different perspective. But most of us growing up, um, when we heard about American expansion, expansionism, we sing from about sea to, to shining sea. Um, yeah, Judy. Yeah, uh, Judy just brought the, the um, uh, manifest destiny, that we have a destiny to spread across this continent. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Anyway, um, when you're talking about American expansionism, that, that we're going to Hawaii, we're, we bought uh, uh, Alaska, we, we bought the, the Louisiana Purchase, we, we spread from, from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast, we usually think, yay, that's really cool. Yay. Um, the Alamo and all that kind of stuff, we go, yeah, we, we, we Texans saved Mexico from the Mexicans, right? Because they weren't doing it right. Santa Ana, oh, he's just so mean. And we brought liberty and justice and all that good American stuff. We tend to view that very positively. When we've been talking about Europe and the expansionism of various people in Europe, we, you know, everybody tends to go, oh, they're just so expansionistic. They're just so obnoxious. When we talked about the Spaniards coming and conquering Mexico, everybody was, oh, they're just mean. Cortez, Bizarro, all these guys are mean. Oh, yucky. When we talk about America growing itself, we tend to be very happy about that. Maybe not. Maybe you maybe you had a really good 
history teacher, maybe you've had awesome conversations in your family and homeschooling, whatever. You've come at it from a more nuanced perspective. Most of us, when we talk about this, we have a more positive view. And it's not, I'm not picking on America. I'm not saying it's bad that we did a bad thing uh, by, by expanding ourselves, by helping out the Philippines and saving them from those nasty Japanese. Yeah. What I'm saying is we are echoing this city on a hill mindset that when we conquer an area, we don't conquer it to control it. We conquer it to bring that American way, that justice and liberty. That's what we're bringing in. And so we're saving people. Everybody wants us there. Just ask the Cherokee, right? They, they wanted to go on that trail of tears because it made things better because, anyway, 1631, because we're like, what, like 20 minutes into our, into our, uh, 25 minutes, I guess, into our class, and we, we need to get off of 1630. There's more years to talk about. 1631, Roger Williams moves to Boston. Uh, he's trained in England as a jurist, as a theologian, and, and he, he realized that even amongst the separatists, he's a separatist. He's like, I, I just, every church is messed up. They're all Theologically messed up, they all try to, to give you suggestions from the outside in. Um, we can't do that. I mean, he originally was going to be a missionary to Native Americans. Uh, that's He learned their language. He learned their customs. He was like a Wycliffe missionary before there was Wycliffe missionaries. So he was going to come and he was going to, he was going to baptize all the Native Americans. And then he realized, I don't think I can because I don't think I can baptize them into any church. There's no church left in the world to baptize them into because all churches are messed up. No, he's not No, he's not related to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, uh, what, 200 years later, uh, founds the Mormon religion, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because he said all churches are, are corrupt. So I'll make my own, and it'll be good. For good or for bad, William says, no, I'm not making my own church. I'm making no church. I can't, I can't go to any church. There can be no church. You can't get two people together uh, where you don't start screwing it up. Uh, now, there's the churches in Boston and Salem both said, could you please be our pastor? You, you're such a good theologian. You're so well-respected, especially Salem, because they're a little uber-separatist anyway with Skelton. But he said, no, no, I, I can't have any communion with any church. And it's interesting because Winthrop jumps in and goes, you're more than just a little confused because... You still have communion with your wife, and I'm pretty sure that would be a tiny little church right there, right? Yeah, but you, no, you may think he's being silly, but there's a there's a logical argument here because you say, well, you still take communion with your wife. That's that's two people, right? Can can that be a church? Can you have a church of two people? What what about three? Can you do three? If you can do two, can't you do three? Can you do four? Where's the bold black line? where you say, it's okay. Oh, now it's not. Can you say, well, as long as they're family. You go, oh, so your children and your parents and your cousins. And well, no, not that. Not, you can do children, not cousins. Why? Could it only be your family? What, what's the rule here, Williams? I know you're trying to be conscientious about this, but I, I think you're being a bit of a hypocrite. Because what you're saying is, is you won't join anybody else's church which is a little different. Anyway, all of this brought Williams into dispute with other people, strangely enough, 
because other people thought that their church was fine. Thank you. You know? Right, you're picking on all churches. Well, my church is one of those all churches. Now, one of these guys that he came into uh, conflict with is John Cotton. Remember John? He's the guy that gave that sermon for them in England and who said, yeah, I, I can't go with you because uh, I'm trying to work within the system. By this point, um, Cotton has joined them in the New World. He's not a separatist. He still doesn't think that being a separatist is a good idea. But the Church of England has come down so hard on Puritans that he's like, I can't, I can't stay. I don't want to separate from, uh, from the Church of England, but they're kicking me out. It's kind of like uh, at the beginning, remember when we talked at the beginning of our church history class 47 years ago when we started this class? We talked about the fact that um, uh, it wasn't Christianity that booted out Jews. It's not like all the Gentiles said, well, we're not Jewish, so you Jews get out of, out of the church. It's that the, the Jews actually kicked Christian Jews out of the synagogue. And so it, it's not like the, the Christians were trying to separate from Judaism. Judaism was trying to separate themselves from Christianity. It's kind of the same way what's going on here. Um, Cotton didn't try to leave the Church of England. The Church of England said, you cannot be a Puritan and be part of the Church of England. And so he was actually going to be called up on charges of preaching stuff that isn't straight up Church of England stuff. And, and he said, no, I, I, I guess I just can't stay. I didn't want to leave, but I can't stay. So anyway, he was persecuted enough in England that he's come to the New World to preach. And he preached still, even after everything that had gone on with the Church of England. He's like, we've got to see if we can still get along. We're, we're part of one body. Whether, whether we recognize it or not, whether they see it or not, we're all part of the same family. So separatism is wrong. Williams says separatism doesn't go far enough. Are you still part of a church? Then you haven't gone far enough. Um, Cotton says, you know, I think all secular governments should base their laws on the Ten Commandments, something called theonomy. We should have all law based on the capital L law of God. That just makes sense to me. William says, no, that doesn't make sense to me. All government and religion should have no connection with one another whatsoever. I don't want the Ten Commandments being taught by governors to me. I don't want them involved at all. If I think that, I, that no pastor should be telling me what I should believe, no external outward force should be influencing my faith. If that's what I believe about my individual Christianity, why on earth would I want a governor telling me what to believe? I do not want any external um, push or pressure on my faith. No external intervention. Now, well, yeah, of course that's dangerous. Um, to say that everybody has to figure this out for themselves, yeah, that's going to be hard. You you open the, well. In fact, hold on to that thought because we're going to get into that here in a second a little bit more. Anyway, 1632, uh, Williams issues a tract that berates the government for its treatment of Native Americans, saying, "You don't get to just hand away Native American land. You don't get to say that's Virginia. I say so. That's Massachusetts. I say so." I mean, yeah, you guys bought Manhattan from the Native Americans, but for the most part, you guys haven't. You've just taken the land because you could. 
And there's plenty of it. There's plenty of land. And, and a lot of the tribes that you've, you've taken the land from, they're nomadic. In the grand scheme of things, they don't really care if they build their, their village here or there next season. But that's not the point. You're, you're treating them as if they, they don't matter, as if they're lesser than you. And you don't have the divine right, King, to push people from outside. Do you see a theme, by the way, in Williams? You don't have a... You can't press people from from outside. Um, a lot of authorities said this is kind of seditious talk. You're starting to speak against the king. But Skelton, because again, Salem Church, little little separatist, little militant in the first place, Skelton says, well, come, come be part of our church. You can be my assistant pastor, um, and, and we'll kind of watch over you. No, no, no church. I don't want to be part of any church in Skelton. You need to be. It's kind of like uh, you're being released into our recognizance. If you aren't part of our protection, we can't protect you, and you're going to get yourself into some serious trouble with this talk. So come be part of our church, which is okay until Skelton dies in 1635, which makes Williams the de facto pastor, whether whether he wanted to be or not. And so he starts denouncing what he's calling soul yokes and preaching soul liberty. You need to take the yoke off of other people and give them the liberty and the obligation to choose their own path toward worshiping God. Because you are going to stand before God and be held personally accountable to what you did. Uh, The phrase he used here is because, quote, forced worship stinks in God's nostrils. And I, I wholeheartedly agree that anytime you try to, you, you you pull somebody in and say, I know you're a Baptist, but you have to, you have to uh, be a good Catholic. Whether you believe it or not, just do all the Catholic things. And you go, that's not going to count for anything. You're not a good Baptist anymore, and you're not a good Catholic, because you don't mean it. Um, so so he's, he's pushing, when he's talking about soul liberty, he's not saying just the freedom to believe whatever you feel like doing. But you have an obligation to figure this out on your own. Each and every Christian has to be held accountable for what they believe. Um, yeah, now we can go back to this. There's an inherent danger to that. If you, when the Bible's talking about having shepherds, um, iron sharpening iron, etc., the whole idea is that you should never go over this all by yourself. You should always be part of a larger group. There's always should be influence, not external pressure, but influence. But there's a, I mean, it's a sliding scale. I mean, on one end is anarchy, and on the other end is fascism. Uh, somewhere in between is something vaguely healthy, maybe, you know, where where you've got a shepherd who can help. I mean, um, let's extend that shepherd example or analogy for a second. Um, it's my job as your shepherd to try to make sure you don't get eaten by a wolf or eat poison berries or fall off a cliff or something like that. I'm, I'm responsible for trying. But if I'm over there helping Kitty make sure that she's not eating poison berries, I may not see what Lucy's over there doing. She may be gulping them down. And I'm like, oh, ah! I'm not going to be poisoned because Lucy ate poison berries. But... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to help. I can't force you guys to do anything. I can't force. I can try to keep you from wandering off in the woods to get eaten by a wolf. But if you 
jump the fence and go, I'm free! I'm free! And you go running off, and I may not be able to catch you. I may be trying desperately to keep Lucy and Kitty from eating the poison berries, and I can't catch up to you to keep you from being eaten by the wolf. Think of the biblical example of the watchman. You have a responsibility to tell people. You have no responsibility of them listening. But you have a responsibility to tell people. It's kind of the Cassandra principle. You may have truth. Uh, you may not be listened to. So uh, uh, everybody has a responsibility to be encouraging one another, to be sharing with one another, uh, to listen to that external voice of wisdom. And in that respect, I disagree with Williams. But everybody has a personal responsibility to believe what they believe and to own it. And nobody can come in from outside and change what you believe by coercion, by external pressure. And in that respect, couldn't agree with him more. Now, nonetheless, none of this went over well with other churches. Uh, Pastor Thomas Shepard of the, of the church there in Cambridge said, "'Tis Satan's policy to plead for an indefinite and boundless toleration. Tolerance of people who believe differently? No, that's what Satan wants. Again, remember, pure, pure Puritans, right? City on a hill doesn't mean religious freedom. City on a hill means we're right, and we got to make sure everybody sees it. Pastor Nathaniel Ward of Ipswich uh, nearby says, the only liberty for people like Williams was, quote, free liberty to keep away from us. I don't want him anywhere near me. And he's totally free to go away from me. Because, yes, they were even... Even pure, pure Puritans still could be snarky. So Williams saying, ah, oh, I'm getting beat up by other pastors. That's it. I'm your pastor here at Salem Church. We're going to separate. Come on. Separate from all the other corrupt churches here in the, in the New World. Who's with me? Cricket noises. Everybody kind of looks at each other. Oh, I'm gone. So yeah, they booted him out of his own church. Like, uh, no, you're gone. And then he's exiled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony on charges of sedition and heresy because nobody likes to hear that kind of stuff. Leaves the colony, settles on, on land that he purchased from the Narragansetts, uh, a Native American tribe that's part of, I think, the Massachusetts uh, uh, Union. Anyway, but he's good. He's like, I'm purchasing the land. I, I'm actually treating these Native Americans well. But he's not the only one who ends up getting in trouble with the colonies or specifically with the Puritans. 1638, Anne Hutchinson is banished as a heretic, too. Um, she's the daughter of an Anglican minister, and she's she's very bright. She's good with theology. So after, after church each week, um, and she's in John Cotton's church, after church each week, she leads uh, discussions in her home, and they discuss the sermons, by the way. I'd love it if you guys did that. Uh, not small group discussions, mind you, but like 60 people sitting in her, in, her, in her house talking about this stuff and engaging in lively conversations about this. Um, that's significant. So her pastor, uh, John Cotton, preaches a little differently. Like I said before, he's, he's, not doing, he's not doing exactly what the Church of England did. He's not doing what Puritan ministers did. He's kind of doing his own thing. At that time, uh, most Puritan pastors were preaching what they called preparationism. You have to prepare yourself to receive God's grace. 
before you can become a Christian, you need to read the Bible, you need to go to church, you need to get your life right so that God can actually forgive your sins. Be yes, before conversion. Not after conversion, before conversion. You need to be good enough for God to save. Um, and then you need to show this. You need to give evidences of your justification by your sanctification. Big word, so let me say it this way. You need to show that you have been set apart for God, that you have been made a Christian by the holiness of your lifestyle. Yeah, I, now, yeah, I know that in Scripture, it does talk about by your fruit, you'll, you'll know that, that, yes, we can only judge if somebody's a Christian by, do they say they're a Christian, do they act like a Christian, etc. This is, this is taking that to another degree. This is saying, you aren't a Christian. I don't care how much you think you're a Christian. I don't care how much you say that you're a Christian. You aren't a Christian if your life isn't to my standards of sanctified, to my standards of living like a good Puritan. If you're not working hard enough, if you're not looking good enough, you aren't saved. You have to do it this way. Um, if you have anything that's messed up, um, Donna, you, you yelled at your kid in, in anger, um, and I think that was inappropriate. You weren't, you weren't acting like a good mom. Uh, therefore, I don't think you're a Christian, and uh, we may have to excommunicate you. You go, well, I, I, how was that? What did that have to do with that? Well, because you're not perfect. You're not sinless. And if you're not sinless, then you're not a Christian. And therefore, I'm sorry, you can't be part of our fellowship. You have to prove that you are good enough for God to save. Now, here's the thing. That actually sounds kind of Arminian. Because remember when we talked about Arminians and Calvinists? It sounds kind of Arminian, because there were certain Arminian groups that thought you have to earn your salvation. You have to work really hard to, 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 um, to be part of it. And the Calvinists are like, no, it has nothing to do with you. But it's actually extreme Calvinism. Um, because what it is in Calvinism, you, you don't know if you're one of the elect or not until your sanctified life demonstrates that you're one of the elect. Because you can't say, well, but I chose Christ. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with you choosing Christ. In Calvinism, your salvation, in extreme Calvinism, I'm sorry, in extreme Calvinism, your salvation has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with your choices, nothing to do with what you want, nothing to do with what you think, nothing to do with what you feel. It's not your choice to serve God or to follow him or to become a Christian. So you don't really ever know. There's nothing that you can point to in your life that you say, well, because I did this, then I became a Christian. It doesn't work like that. So how do you know if you're a Christian or not? And in this extreme form of Calvinism, the reason that you know that you're a Christian is because your works are good enough. They obviously show that Somewhere along the line, you were you were saved, or maybe I should back up and and say, because um, yeah, because Sarah here is Sarah here is, is saying it's um, it, there's a difference between um, trying to live out a sanctified life because you've been saved, or or and, and saying trying to live out a sanctified life in order to become saved. Uh, they're different parts of the, of, the, of the continuum. But within this form of Calvinism, there isn't. There isn't a time when you weren't going to be a saved person. Which is why um, 
and Calvinism, they held on to infant baptism, even though the theology is completely different. They held on to Catholicism's infant baptism. In Catholicism, they baptized infants because a priest getting you moist is what saves you. It's the actions of the church hierarchy, because Peter's been given the keys to the kingdom. It's the actions of the church hierarchy that change you, that bring you into Christ, that bring you into heaven. It's not you, it's the priest. And so, um, and obviously we, we would sit there and say, no, no, it's, the priest can't declare you a Christian any more than a parent can declare you a Christian. You have to declare you a Christian. God has to declare you a Christian. In this form of Calvinism, um, they kept on, they kept with infant baptism because they're like, it doesn't matter when you get baptized, per se, because baptism is not um, an expression of the fact that you want to change in your life, that you are repentant, because that would suggest that you've done something, you're making some sort of statements. Baptism is emblematic of the fact that God is wanting to change you. So your baptism is reflective of your future salvation once God brings you to the point where you feel like you want to make a decision for Christ, but that decision is actually coming from God. And then you make that decision, which is why you need confirmation, because you need to confirm that you actually are a Christian. Yes, everybody got baptized. Some never became a Christian, so all it was was moistening. Others did become Christians, and that's what we're confirming confirmation. Right? That's that's this form of, of Calvinism. Um, I have a great deal of respect for Calvin. Um, I've read his Institutes of the Christian Religion. The guy rocks in a lot of ways. I, I don't consider myself this kind of Calvinist, because I do think that your decision matters. Um, I don't think that uh, baptism is, is supposed to be just an emblem of um, the fact that God wants to save you. I think scripturally it's always an expression that you're making of wanting to be right with the Lord, of wanting to leave your sins at the bottom of the baptistry. Um, so that's part of why we don't have confirmation as a, as, a, as a congregation here, because we're not confirming anything by that. We would rather have mentoring. We'd rather have adults coming alongside of our, of our youth and interacting with them, sharing life and sharing truth. We'd rather teach them uh, correct theology, correct doctrine in Sunday school and in youth group. Anyway, it sounds Arminian, but it's actually Calvinist because, as with so many viewpoints in life, whether it's political or religious or whatever, if you go far enough to the extremes on the continuum, you wrap around the other side. If you take Calvinism to its massive extreme, saying, you never know if you're saved or not, so you better live out a life that shows that you're saved, or else I'm going to declare that you're not saved. Or to the extreme of Arminianism, where you say, you never know if you're going to be able to hold on to your salvation, so you better keep living a good life or else you might lose it. You, know, you take those two extremes, in point of practice, they look exactly the same. Um, just like uh, extreme fascism under Hitler and extreme communism under Stalin, you go, right, opposite ends of the political spectrum, right? Communism versus fascism. Fascism, the state owns everything. Communism, the people own the state. Yeah, it could not be more polar opposite. Stalinist Russia, Hitler's Germany looked almost identical in terms of how they were lived out. If you take any extreme continuum to its extremes, 
it will usually wrap around and start looking exactly the same. Funky but true. Anyway, so Cotton and Hutchinson and John Wheelwright Hutchinson's brother-in-law, who's also a, a minister, are preaching that this preparationism is a works-oriented salvation. It's at odds with God's grace. It sounds almost Arminian. It's like saying that you have to get healthy before the doctor is even going to be able to come see you and treat you. Oh, you can't go to the hospital. You're too sick for that. It's, it's silly talk. It's crazy talk. And so, um, though Cotton is technically the one who starts this controversy because he's preaching unique things, um, Hutchinson is making it, she's kind of throwing a, 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 a lantern into a, a pool of kerosene. Because not only is she saying, here, I'm preaching something different, but she's making criticisms of everybody else's pastors. Cotton is saying, here's what I think Scripture is saying, and, and Hutchinson is saying, and everybody else has got it wrong, which is what gets you into hot water. So 1636, she and all the other free grace leaders, what they're calling themselves, are, are brought before a colonial council to answer charges of heresy and slander. Because um, she's saying naughty things about other people's pastors. If, and, and they took her comments out of context. And they said, you're encouraging immorality. Because they're like, are you, you're saying your morality doesn't matter. She said, oh, of course it matters. And they said, yeah, but you're saying you don't have to be a good person in order to be a Christian. She's, I, I understand why. But she's like, well, no, no, you don't. Which is true. You don't have to be a good person to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, that should play itself out in you being a good person. If you genuinely are a Christian, we'll go back to what Cliff was saying about the fruits. If you genuinely are a good, per, uh, uh, genuinely are a Christian, you should have fruit in your life that shows that. But you don't have to have everything all figured out and be perfect in order to be a Christian. And so she's like, yeah, no, technically you could be immoral and be a Christian, and that didn't help her case at all. Cotton jumps in, and he's, he's trying to make it, it's like he always does. He's like, I mean, can't we get along? Let's not fight about this. We're brothers and sisters. We're all part of the same body. Can't we work on this? And their answer was no. No, 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 we can't. So 1637, both Wheelwright and Hutchinson are banished on charges of sedition and heresy. You're disagreeing with the authorities, and you're preaching things that just aren't true. In fact, Hutchinson's trial is presided over by Governor Will Winthrop himself. He's like, nope. We're, we're, we're kicking her out. But she's actually held for a couple more months in contempt of court because she just disagreed with and told the people who were in court that they were wrong. Um, but she was actually held until she could also be tried by the church courts as well. And in 18, no, 1638, the pastors of the area all excommunicated her, not Cotton. He didn't excommunicate her, but everybody else did. And anybody who would support her, if any churches gave her any support, any sucker at all, um, if anybody gave her any um, uh, place to stay, they would be excommunicated. So she's got nowhere to go, right? Where, where can she go? She can't just wander out of the colony and go somewhere else into the woods because that's dangerous. She can't go to New Amsterdam. They don't want her. Where do you go? That's right. You can go to Roger Williams' lands. He's got lands that he's, he's like, I'm happy to have you and your followers. Knock yourself out. He calls his plantation God's Providence. And yes, you can come to Providence and stay with us. That same year, 1638, Pastor John Harvard died. And everybody goes, so? He's, an, he's a nice guy. 
scholar, minister, comes over from England with his new wife, 1637, and then dies at age of 30, right, from tuberculosis. He had a promising future. He's like, man, I was really going to help out with this. He, he was part of the group that was trying to start up a, a, a local college of Newtown, which is being built to um, train Puritan ministers. And uh, so as he's dying, he said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I want to bequeath half my fortune, uh, 779 pounds, and my library of 400 plus books that I had shipped over from England with me so that I could be a, a scholar over here. I'm going to give all those to the college. And so, yeah, Judy's got this figured out. And so the college renamed itself in his honor. The college agreed upon formally to be built at Cambridge shall be called Harvard College. So from that's where you get Harvard University. Yep, yep, Terry, they've come a long way. They were originally going to be this Puritan Minister's College. An amazing number of universities started off as Christian colleges, if you remember it. Not so much anymore. Same year, by the way, that New Sweden was established. Uh, Queen, uh, Queen Christina of Sweden says, everybody else has got a piece in the New World. I want a piece in the New World. I want Swedish territory. They even hired Peter Minuit. Remember, remember him? Does he look familiar? Don't judge him by the hat, because he looked familiar. This is the former uh, governor of New Amsterdam, who had bought Manhattan Island from the wrong Indians, the Lenape, back in 1626. And so they're like, hey, you know this area. Why don't you... Uh, lead the first expedition to set everything up and build a new colony. They even got their first official Swedish Lutheran minister in 1640. Woo! 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 Yeah, all the Swedes in the room. Woo! Woo! Knock yourselves out. First Swedish Lutherans. This is technically would be part of the roots of the Covenant Church here in America. Anyway, but if you go, wow, I didn't know there was a new Sweden. I knew about New Amsterdam. It eventually came to New York. I knew about all the British colonies. I even knew about the French territories. I didn't know there was a new Sweden. Don't feel bad, because by 1655, it was gone. New Amsterdam took it back, right back. 17 years, there was a new Sweden in, 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 the, in the Americas, and then not. So, don't feel bad. 1644. Let's end on this, because we need to. Roger Williams founds the Rhode Island Colony. Now, remember, he had to move. He had to go find a new place to live. Colony keeps expanding. You keep getting pushed farther and farther west. So eventually, he moves to this small island called Quidneck Island and settles there. Right over here, the yellow island here. Um, he buys it from the from the Native Americans, and uh, it's, it's, it's a really nice place. The Florentine explorer Giovanni de Varazzano, uh, back in 1524, had said that the, that the island reminded him of the Greek Isle of Rhodes which is probably why in 1637 Williams referred to it in documents as the Isle of Rhodes, or Rhode Island. So he's like, yeah, that's where I'm going to, this is where I'm going to stay. This is where I'm going to be. So he's been picking up people over time. All these similarly banished people come to settle in his plantation in Providence on Rhode Island. And so like when the Pequot War broke out in 1637 between the tribes and between the Pequots and the colonists, Williams and his people supported the colonists. He actually had enough people that they could make a difference in the war. He also encouraged the Narragansetts to side with the colonists against the Pequots. So he was really, really important. And the colonists were like, yeah, we kind of like, we don't like him. He's a pain in the butt, but he's useful, especially when dealing with the Native Americans. 
We kind of like having him nearish by. I don't want him next door, but nearby is kind of helpful. Um, but still, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of pressure for him to, and his growing clump of people, to um, adhere to pure, pure Puritanism. And so he, he finally, in 1643, goes, that's it. I'm, I'm going to go to England to ask for my own colonial charter. Luckily, as luck would have it, England's embroiled in civil war. And you say, how is that lucky? Well, because the Puritans are winning. The Puritans are actually coming to power in England. Remember, there's this whole Church of England versus Puritan thing. The Puritans finally went, enough is enough. So when Williams asked for his own colonial charter, uh, he's making this case for soul liberty. Um, he publishes a bunch of books in England about Native American languages, about uh, soul liberty, etc. And he asks Parliament, this new Puritan Parliament, that, quote, a permission of uh, the most paganish and Jewish and Turkish and anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries. Not because we're pro-pagan or pro-Turk, and by Turkish he means mostly, or pro-anti-Christianism, but because everybody needs to make their own decision for Christ. Everybody needs to be held accountable. We don't want to push anybody or coerce anybody. And the, the Puritan Long Parliament goes, yeah, that's fine. Let's see if that works. So Rhode Island becomes its own official colony. And it's based on religious freedom. And when I say that, I, I have to clarify again. I, I want you to, to walk away from this and, and hear me. Contrary to, to what we normally think of today, when they were dealing with religious freedom, this wasn't a liberal socio-political position. This was an extremely conservative spiritual position. This wasn't William saying, everybody has rights and we have a right to religious freedom. This is him saying, everyone has an obligation to be accountable before God for their faith personally. This isn't me fighting for religious rights. This is me fighting for religious obligation. But do, you, do you understand the difference? It's kind of important. He argued for religious tolerance specifically because he's a conservative evangelical Christian. And true faith can never be mandated from a human authority of any kind. Now, again, you may, you may have agreed up until I said of any kind. But it still can't be mandated by a human authority. I, I can teach you faith, but I can't mandate it any. He wrote a, a very famous little snippet here that's been used ever since. He said, when they've opened a gap in the hedge or wall of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world, God hath ever broke down the wall itself, removed the candlestick from the church, and made his garden into a wilderness, just like the world they were trying to reach, as it is to this day. In other words, what he's saying is you can't allow even the smallest gap in the wall between the church and the world. It inevitably pollutes the church. It doesn't bring the church into the world and change the world. It makes the church into the world. The garden becomes the wilderness. The church becomes the government. It doesn't work, ever. And as we've looked at in, in the church history class, he's got a point. Every time that the church says, oh, we get to run things, they essentially just become a secular government. But I don't think I would take it quite this far. 
Uh, well, yeah, obviously, because of all the people groaning here, we wouldn't take this this far. But you see where you're saying you can't, I'm not asking you to agree with him, just you see where he's saying you can't allow any gap between that wall of separation because the, the whole wall just falls down eventually. This concept of a necessary wall of separation between the secular and the spiritual, again, picked up and run with Amer by Americans, American politicians, American churchmen, individual Americans ever since, um, that there should be a wall between church and state. But here's the thing. It's by Nowadays, when we use it, it's almost always backwards from the way Williams meant it. He's like, we have to keep a wall of separation between the government and the church, otherwise it will harm the church. Today, when we talk about religious tolerance, when we talk about religious freedom, when we talk about the wall of separation between church and state, if you're talking about Indiana law or federal law, whatever, almost invariably it comes down to we absolutely have to have a wall of separation between church and state to protect the state from the church. We need to protect people from what church authority would do in their lives, from that kind of judgmentalism. We need to protect their, their right to believe whatever they want to believe, because anything they want to believe is okay. William says, no, we need to protect their obligation to believe what they need to believe, because not everything they believe is okay. There is only one truth, and they need to make sure that they cover that, but that they cover that individually. It's very helpful to look at history and understand how things have changed and why they happen the way they happen. So, when we look at why we believe what we believe, when we're talking about doctrinal purity, are we throwing out everybody who disagrees with us, or are we saying, oh, everybody who believes anything is absolutely fine? Are we going to one extreme of Arminianism or one extreme of Calvinism? Are, there's a reason why in this church we tend to, to, to focus on that we media, that middle road. Um, not, not compromise, but finding ways so that we can try to minister to all 